we have been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians forever. And um, we're in December now. The pastor always has to decide, do you keep studying what you've been studying as you get closer and closer to Christmas? Now, some pastors say, nope, December is all Christmas. Others, they just keep plowing along and they keep studying whatever they've been studying. Now, there is a moral dilemma when the letter you've been studying is pretty much all about circumcision. How far into Christmas do you go still preaching on circumcision? So um, we're going to take a little break from Galatians. We'll come back and study that. But uh, this Sunday and actually all of December, um, we're going to study that story in Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men. I find the wise men uh, fascinating. And uh, we'll, so we'll spend three Sundays studying the wise men, including next Sunday. Right? But here's, I hope you can see that in the back. I know white on blue is not great, but here's the text. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, really, today we're going to focus just on that. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who are they? Where they what possessed them to come? Right? Who are these wise men? That's what we're going to look at. Saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they they opened up the prophet Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah, and they found the section where it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men come, they go, Where is this, the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Scholars look it up, they say, In Bethlehem. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's a lie. He wants to kill him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, uh, there's a lot of confusion about who these wise men are. And a lot of the confusion actually comes from some of our own Christmas carols. In fact, um, here's a beloved one. We three kings of Orient are. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six words. And in those six words, there are three errors. 
Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, we don't know that there were only three. In fact, there may have been two. There may have been 20. There may have been 100. There may have been 1,000. We don't know how many there were. Now, how do we get three? Well, the three gifts, we usually think, well, each one carried a gift. Right? So there must have been three. But we don't know exactly how many there were. All right? Second thing, uh, they really weren't kings. Who were they? Well, the, the Greek word is magi, magicians. But they weren't pick a card, put it back in the deck, shuffle it. No, these were occultic priests from Iran. Okay, so that's the third thing. Uh, Orient, if you're thinking China, no. Um, they are from Persia or modern-day Iran. So other than that, the song is a great song. Okay, Now, we don't know much about these magi, but we do know that they are the ultimate example of God-seekers, especially when you contrast them with the rest of Israel, which was basically asleep. These people come a thousand miles, probably by camel or horse, uh, to seek after. They're, they're following a star. Their astrology uh, mixed maybe with a prophecy from the Old Testament that maybe Daniel brought to them uh, when Daniel was brought into captivity. Um, the star uh, and their astrology, and they're seeking after the Messiah, the King of Israel. And they're willing to devote their lives to finding this Messiah while the rest of Israel, okay, so they show up, they say, where's the king of the Jews? The scholars look it up, they go, it's at Bethlehem, which is only five miles south of, of Jerusalem. And uh, the wise men go, but nobody from Jerusalem goes. I'm just always fascinated by the seeking hearts, the passion of these seekers who are willing to devote their lives to finding the Messiah compared to the religious people of Israel who just yawn. They don't really care. Now, how do we explain Israel's lack of interest and these seekers' intense interest? That's the question I want to ask this morning. How do you explain Israel's lack of interest in seeking the Messiah compared to these seekers' intense interest? Now, here's the answer. Man is spiritually dead. Man is spiritually dead. He has no interest in seeking after God. So God has to choose certain individuals, resurrect them from the dead spiritually, and irresistibly draw them to Christ. This is a picture of God's irresistible election and drawing of people to Christ amidst a sea of spiritual deadness. Okay? Now, let me say this. Um, while I was kind of joking about not covering circumcision and so forth, um, there seems to be, when it comes to Christmas messages, 
this unwritten rule where you can't go too deep. It's supposed to be light and devotional. I call it the devotional delusion where, oh, it's Christmas, let's not get too deep. We're going to go pretty deep this morning, um, deep theologically. Now, uh, on, the, on the one hand, for some of you, this is going to be new. This is going to be highly deep, highly controversial. It really shouldn't be. This should be basic 101 level uh, theology that all of us know. All right? So we're going to look at these wise men. And we're going to learn three things, three theological points, and uh, the wise men and their seeking hearts, uh, they're the illustration of these points. So, point number one that we need to learn um, in answering the question, how do you explain these seeking seekers versus Israel's deadness? First concept we have to understand is man is totally depraved. We need to understand total depravity. Now... Here's a question um, that I ask when I, when I taught at Moody. Here's a question I ask the students. Is man by himself spiritually neutral, spiritually sick, or spiritually dead? Is man spiritually neutral, sick, or dead. Now, I think if you were to ask the average man on the street, he would say, well, man's neutral. You know, we're born tabula rasa, blank slate. We just come into the world and uh, we, we take all this data in and we decide whether God exists and whether we seek after him or, or not. We're born spiritually neutral. That's what the average man on the street view is. Okay. Um, I think those who know their Bible a little bit will say, no, 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 man is spiritually sick. But because man is called to choose and make choices, he can't be dead. He's got to be, uh, you know, just spiritually sick. Well, what's the answer? Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your transgressions or your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You weren't just sick. You certainly weren't neutral. You were dead. So guess what? If there are unbelievers in this room, and I'm sure there are, they are not just spiritually sick. They're dead. The unbelievers amongst us have no zero interest. They have no interest in the things of God. Some people go to church because uh, they, they may think it benefits them morally. Maybe I'll learn a few things. I have some friends who go to church. What, you know, what, whatever, there are all these different motives. But the non-believer has zero interest in truly knowing the true God. Now, there's a lot of uh, false gods that they are willing to settle for. But the non-believer has zero interest in knowing the true God. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. So um, you go, well, how do you reach them? And here's where, here's where the church growth movement goes wrong. The church growth movement, first of all, starts with the wrong assumption. 
They start with the assumption that man isn't dead. They start with the assumption that we can, we can somehow, through our technique, get to that spiritually sick person. So if we have the right coffee, if we have the right building, if we preach the right way and say the right things, if we have the right music, if we have the right atmosphere, then we, like the marketing experts out there in the world, we in the church can create believers. You know what? You can take your best efforts at church growth, and let's say we, took, we packed them all up and we went to a cemetery, and we put on a show. Man, we had the screeching guitar and the boombox. Who's that guy on that drum up there, boy? Uh, all right. And, and we had drama and juggling clowns and fire eaters and the <laughs> whatever. Like we, we just did our best in the cemetery. What would the response be? Dead people are dead. Dead people don't do altar calls. Okay. Yet the church growth movement is all about the techniques that we try to get more people to come. People are dead. So you know what we end up doing? The church growth movement at least? It ends up filling the pews with dead people who like something other than the true gospel. Well, I really like that church. I like that music. I like the drama. I like the coffee. I like the way they greet me at the door. I like the, the, the feel of the bulletin. I like this. I like that. It's all based on externals, right? Um, you know, I, I mentioned a survey that all the, all the people on the Internet are talking about today. Uh, one of these, these uh, church marketing people did a survey, and they found out the number one reason why visitors don't like to come back to a church is that turn and greet your neighbor part that we do. I don't want to turn and greet my neighbor and they feel uncomfortable and they leave. So everybody's like, oh, what should we do about that? Should we cut out the turn and greet your neighbor thing? The reason the non-believer doesn't come back is not because somebody greeted them inappropriately. It's because they're bored to the things of God. They're dead to the things of God. Yeah, don't insult your neighbor. Probably brush your teeth before you come to church. It's all right to have a nice bulletin. Yeah, we should do things with excellence because God deserves it. But the reason the non-believer doesn't come back, ultimately, in a Bible-teaching church, is because he's dead. So, you know what? I, as pastor and we as staff, I think we need to try to push for excellence, but we're deluding ourselves if we think church growth is all about externals. It's all about dead people. Well, how do we raise the debt? We're going to get there in just a minute. But I'm only on verse 1 here, all right? So you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What do you mean you were dead? Well, notice what this means in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So there's the course of God, and then there's the course of this world. The non-believers just caught up in the trivia of this world. They're concerned about things that don't matter. Money. The bears. Christmas presents. You know, and I'm not saying any of those things is bad, 
but they don't matter. What matters is God. So the non-believers caught up in the, the influences of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the non-believer, I don't, want, I don't mean to scare you, but if you're a non-believer, you're dead, you're worldly, and you're influenced by Satan. Yes, there is a Satan, and he is controlling you and trying to keep you back from believing the truth of the gospel. Uh, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the uh, passions of our flesh, that's our sinful nature, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the non-believer, you're dead, You're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you're under the wrath of God. That's why the non-believer doesn't come back. All right? Now, um, if you go, well, that's just one verse. Is that really the assessment of mankind in the Bible? Well, let's go to Romans 3. In Romans 3, the first three chapters, Paul is building a case. In chapter 1, he basically says, uh, the reality of God is obvious, but man has rejected him. And the Jew would say, yeah, the, the Gentile word has, world has rejected him, but we're Jews and we have accepted him. And in chapter 2, he says, but you Jews who have the law, you're really into law keeping, um, you violate that law. You have the law, you are aware of God, but you are sinners just as much as the Gentiles. Chapter 3, his conclusion is this. This is the conclusion about man. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So we have entire churches that are seeker churches, built for the God-seeker. How many seekers are there? No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, man, the assessment of mankind is he's dead and he's not seeking after God. Well, wait a minute. How do you explain these wise men who came seeking the Messiah? God chose them. God chose them and drew them to Christ. Now, here's where people get emotional. But if you buy the premise that man is dead, how else could it work? If mankind is dead and Christ stands there and says, come to me. Whosoever believes in me will be saved. How many dead people are going to respond? Zero. So if anybody's going to, be, anybody's going to respond, guess what? God has to choose them and draw them. Now, this introduces the concept of election. God choosing and drawing. And people say, I don't like the concept of election. And here's why. The picture that a lot of people have in their head is of the Titanic going down and the ocean full of people 
screaming, save me, save me, save me. And the guy goes by in the rowboat and he says, I'll pick you, not you, not you, not you, not you. I'll pick you. And the picture is of poor, innocent, helpless humanity drowning, all saying, please choose me, please choose me. That's a bad picture. Can I give you a better picture, a biblical picture? A prison full of murderers and rapists. Yep, that's us. In walks Christ, and he says, whosoever believes in me, I will save you, I will free you. And as he walks down the aisles, we spit on him, swear at him, curse him. And he says, you know what? In spite of that, you and you and you and you, I will die for you. And he dies, not in the electric chair, but on the cross and sets us free. Okay? It's not humanity saying, I'm seeking after you, please save me. It's humanity saying, go jump in the lake, and he saves us anyways. Now, so the first, the first point is this. If you buy total depravity, that we are dead, then you have to buy the rest. And if you deny it, then you have to deny Ephesians 2, 1, that we are dead. All right, so let's go to point two, theology-wise. Point two, irresistible grace. Not only does he choose you, he irresistibly draws you to Christ. Jesus said this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the no one can come to me. That's not because God is preventing you from coming to him. It's because you don't want to have anything to do with him. No one can. It's not that you don't have the physical ability to do it. It's that you have no desire to do it. So man left to himself will reject Christ and go to hell. But unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here we have the concept of God choosing individuals and drawing them to Christ. Now, some people say, oh, he tries to draw everybody. It's the gentle wooing of the Holy Spirit. So you have to ask the question, is this word draws a gentle word or a strong, forceful word? It's the same word that we see here in Acts 21.30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. The same Greek word is used in that verse. Guess which one it is? Yeah, dragged. They gently wooed Paul out. No, they grabbed him and dragged him. This is not a gentle wooing. This is a forceful dragging. Now, you say, but isn't this verse teaching that he's drawing everybody? No. 
The ones who are drawn are the ones who are raised up, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is everybody raised up and saved? No. The very ones who are drawn are the ones who are saved. This verse teaches that God forcefully drags, and we'll talk about how he does that in just a minute, but he, he forcefully drags you to Christ. Because left to ourselves, we would have nothing to do with Christ. So if you go, go back to the Ephesians verse, we were dead, we are objects uh, of wrath, okay, in verse, uh, verse 3. So here's the question. When man is left in this dead state to be saved, does he need to be healed or resurrected? He needs to be resurrected from the dead. The picture of salvation is like Lazarus in the tomb. And Jesus says, come forth. And the dead man comes out of the tomb. The power of the command is what raises him from the dead. So is, does, does Paul go on to say that God gently wooed us? Or does he say that he resurrected us? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us from the dead. Right? Now, at this point, people don't like this. They go, I won't have it. And they create their own theology. Okay. But here's the problem. People are saying, well, if this is true then there's no real choice. There's no real accountability. And that's you trying to use human philosophy. See, people say, well, if something's determined, it can't be free, or we can't be accountable at least. There's a whole school of philosophy called compatibilism, which says it is possible for things to be determined and for you to be accountable at the same time. I've never heard of that. Well, uh, and, and I don't, I don't want to rely on, a, on philosophy. I want to rely on Scripture. But the, what I want you to get now is that you're totally dead. For anybody to be saved, God has to irresistibly draw you. But the third thing I want you to get is this. You are absolutely accountable. Man is absolutely accountable. You cannot take these verses and go, well, it's all a big charade. I'm just a puppet. Um, I have no responsibility in this thing. No, you are 100% accountable for your deadness, for your shaking your fist at God. You are called to repent and believe in Christ. And you are without excuse when it comes to ignoring God. Let me give you three things that God has given to all of humanity that makes them 100% accountable for their rejection of God. They all begin with the letter C, fortunately. Right? First is creation itself. Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What that tells you is, all of mankind is working really hard to suppress, to hide the obvious truth of the existence of God. 
sinners are working overtime trying to justify and rationalize and explain away the existence of the true God. Now, one way they do it is by replacing him with an idol, a false God. But this verse says uh, that God's wrath is coming because we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. That'd be a great name for a blog site, without excuse, right? Um, What's this saying? Creation screams that God exists. Evolution doesn't explain it. Where, Where did stuff come from? creation of stuff and not just stuff but cool stuff things that fly cheetahs that run brains that think vision that sees to to say that that just came from nowhere you have no excuse no excuse when the glory of god is evident all around us so you're accountable to know about god because of creation but a second thing you know, you, you go, well, I can explain it away. Well, there's a second thing that is your conscience. In Romans 2, the question is, what about the Gentile who doesn't have the law? What about the guy on the island who doesn't have the Bible? Well, Paul answers that. They, these people who don't have the law, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What's that saying? The law of God is written on the heart of every single individual. You know it's wrong to murder. You know it's wrong to steal. You know it's wrong to dishonor your parents. And you know you have violated all of that. You say, I've never killed anybody. Well, Jesus says if you have anger, unjustified anger in your heart, you have committed murder in the heart. Okay, So your conscience witnesses to the reality of the existence of God. Creation, conscience, and then the third thing is Christ. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Stop right there. Um, Now you're going to say, what about those who don't know about Christ? Let me get to that in just a second. But right now, um, you do know about Christ. God has interrupted history and entered into it. And the story of Christ is known. And his gospel is known. And Christmas time witnesses to the glory of Christ. And Easter witnesses to the glory of Christ. So he sent Christ. And the messages he sent him to redeem you from your sin. But what has man done? And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So God has done three things, creation, conscience, and Christ, yet mankind still says, jump in the lake. I want nothing to do with you. You are accountable to come to Christ. The Bible makes it clear. You you can't just say, well, I guess I'm not chosen. Here's what... uh, 
In Acts 7.51, Stephen is preaching to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who've rejected Christ. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. There, we got it in. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Never heard that one before. You have uncircumcised ears. Okay. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. It doesn't sound to me like Stephen is saying, ah, you're not believing in Christ. I guess you weren't chosen. Oh, well, too bad. He's holding them accountable for their rejection of Christ. He's angry that they've rejected Christ. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches the gospel. And does he just go, ah, well, I hope you believe it. I hope you're chosen. If not, oh, well. No. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He's pleading. He's, you know what? There's a time to study election and, and the sovereignty of God. And then there's a time to say, you're sinners. Christ died to pay for sin. Come to him. And this all assumes you're accountable to do that. Now, how does God draw people? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. How does he draw them? Let me give you, give, give you four quick ways God draws a sinner. First, through the law. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When the law of God is proclaimed, sinners become aware of their sin and their need for a Savior. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Liars find their place in the lake of fire. You deserve to go to hell. Have you ever committed adultery? You say no. Jesus says if you've ever lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. And you're in danger of the fires of hell. Have you ever murdered? You say no. If you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. The law of God draws you to Christ. You should say, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. The second thing that draws you to Christ is the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's the gospel? You're a sinner. You deserve to go to hell. But God came to earth. He was born as a little baby. And he died on a cross in your place to pay for your sin. Believe in him and be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. And you go, but I thought people are dead. Here's the miracle. God has chosen to raise the dead through the gospel. It would be like telling Jesus, what are you doing standing outside the tomb of Lazarus saying, come forth? There's no power in your words. Oh, yes, there is. There's power in his words to raise the dead. I'm doing something really foolish here. I'm telling dead people to believe in Jesus. That he can save you from your sin and from eternal, eternal damnation. 
They'll never listen. Yes, they will. Why? Because God raises the dead through the gospel. You know what else he uses? Dissatisfaction. These um, wise men, they were occultic priests. Yet, they're seeking after the king of the Jews. They know something's not right in their religion. King Solomon, who was brought up in the right religion, didn't pursue God most of his life. He was the wisest man who ever lived, the wealthiest man who ever lived, had a thousand women in his, uh, in his harem. He enjoyed folly and pleasure. He was the man who had it all, and at the end of his life he said, I hate life. Why? Because God didn't give him the satisfaction of, uh, of life apart from knowing him. Some of you are here this morning, you're saying, I'm listening, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied with life. It's because you're disconnected from God. Another thing God uses is death. You're going to die. People die every day. Once they asked Jesus, they said, hey, a tower fell on some people. What about them? Jesus used their death to point to their own death. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The, the tower falling on them, that doesn't mean they were worse sinners. But I'll tell you what, every death is a reminder that you're going to die. And you need to repent or perish. So God uses um, these four things and many other things to draw people to himself. If you're a non-believer and you're sitting here this morning, I don't know what all the circumstances are in your life, but I do know it's no accident that you're here. God is using the word preached, the law, the gospel, the script, to draw you to the Savior. Okay? Now, what about those who've never heard or are brought up in different religions? Um... These guys from Persia seem to, to find Christ a thousand miles away. In the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba traveled 500 miles to sit, under the, to sit at the feet of Solomon because she knew that his wisdom had to have come from God. Not only does God draw people from other nations to Christ, he sends missionaries. There were these wicked people called Ninevites who God was going to destroy. And he sent a very reluctant prophet named Jonah who went on a trip inside a whale to Nineveh. And Jonah had a really nice message. Nineveh's toast in 40 days. And they repent. Okay. Um, now, you go, oh, it's unfair to people who are brought up in other, other cultures. You know what? Rather than saying it's unfair, how about saying how amazing it is that God's drawing power is so strong that no matter what culture you're brought up in, through being dissatisfied, through seeing that your conscience bothers you, through, through piecing things together, you are drawn to Christ. Now, here's something I always like to point out. What's the date today? 
it December 7th, nine, no, 2014. Oh, 2014, from what? 2014 what? What's that number? Oh, from the birth of who? If you're on the planet, is the date 2014 everywhere? Well, it is. I guess there might be some really, 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 really backward tribe. Uh, but I think about 7.5 billion people know that today's 2014. From what? From the birth of a guy named Jesus. I ought to look into that. You're without excuse. It's not Muhammad's birthday. It's not Confucius's birthday. It's Jesus. I should look into. All of history seems to be built around this Jesus. I'm raised a Muslim. I'm raised a Buddhist. I'm raised in communist China. But why does that date? There's a stake pounded into history that forces me to look into Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, let's close with a case study. We've looked at these seekers from Persia. Let's look at another guy. His name is Cornelius. He's a Gentile. Again, while most of Israel had rejected Jesus, there's this, this Gentile named Cornelius who, um, he went to the, the Jewish synagogue, but he was called a God-seeker, a proselyte, but not a... Uh, uh, not a Jew because he didn't get circumcised. I had to get it in one more time. Okay, so he was a Gentile who was looking into the things of the Jewish God, but he's still not there yet. And God sends an angel to him. Ah, what about that guy on the island who could? You know what? If somebody really truly is. Uh, bothered in their conscience and they know they violated God's law and they're, they're crying out to him, I believe God can get the message to them. Could use an angel. Could use a dream. Could use a note in a bottle. Could use the internet. But I think the pattern is God usually uses human beings. Right? So Cornelius, an angel tells him, I got a message for you. And and uh, Cornelius could have said to the angel, what's the message? Tell me. But the angel doesn't tell him. He says, send to this other town, Joppa, for a guy named Peter. He's got the message. And what's the point? God uses human beings to con convey the message. Right? So Cornelius is all prepped to hear the gospel by the angel. Meanwhile, Peter, prejudiced Peter who hates Gentiles, he's up on the roof of a house and he has a vision of unclean animals coming down in a sheet. And God says, eat. And he goes, no, I've never eaten unclean. He says, the second time he says, eat. He says, no. Third time he goes, oh, I get it. I'm supposed to go to the Gentiles. And Peter goes on this long journey up to Cornelius' house. And here's the encounter. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up. I too am a man. Get, get up. 
don't worship me. But th- this Cornelius, he is prepped by the way the message here is you go, oh, I try to share the gospel with people and a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with it. You don't know who God has prepped, what he's done in their life, in their heart, in their family. He's prepped Cornelius. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Oh, so he's got a little revival gathering already for Peter. And he said to them, this is, Peter, this is Peter's seeker-sensitive sermon. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I don't want to be here, you disgusting Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me. What do you want? Wow, that's nice. Boy, if any, if any visitor should leave that church, it should be Cornelius for the rude greeter time. Right? But he explains the gospel and Cornelius and his whole household believe in Christ. Now, one last thing I want you to see. You say, Wasn't he saved before the gospel got to him? No. Peter recounts this story in Acts 11. And it says, and he told us, Peter is saying, and he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, or Peter, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and your household. I don't think we can say, like so many theologians are saying today, hey, any old, any old movement toward God saves you. Just you're brought up in any religion, make some move toward God and he'll... No, God says it's the gospel that will save you. Even though Cornelius had made moves toward God, he saw to it that he got Peter, a missionary, with the message to Cornelius. Right? So, tie this all together. What's, what's the point? If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, praise him not just for dying on the cross, but for irresistibly drawing you to him. And he will use you as the messengers to penetrate your dark world and share the gospel to bring others to Christ. He doesn't just snap his finger. He uses you to bring the message of Christ to others. Okay, And what's the message? And now we're going to transition uh, into communion. So if the worship team uh, wants to come up, that would be great. Never is the gospel presented this way in the Bible. Yeah, listen, either you're chosen or not. Good luck. The gospel is presented usually by starting out having you ask yourself, are you a sinner? Are you? Are you a sinner? Have you violated God's law? 
Do you believe that there's a judgment day? Do you think you'll pass? I got news for you. Nobody passes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What hope is there? Christ, eternal member of the Trinity, becomes a man. He's born the way every man is born. Grows up, is nailed to a cross to pay for the sin of sinners. And here's the good news. All who place their hope in him, not in themselves, not in their religion, not in their good works, but in him, will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave, there's your Christmas present, gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. He will save you.